I just want to say thanks to the musicians. That was great this morning. Nice guitar work there. Beautiful. Well, uh, good morning and thanks for having me back to your ongoing summer series on the Psalms. And if you've had a chance to look at this, you'll be relieved to know that we're really just looking at Psalm 110, not 22 all the way to 110. We'd be here for a month if we did that. Okay. Well, Psalm 110 is actually the very opposite of David's sense of abandonment that we talked about in Psalm 22 a few weeks ago. don't know how many were here, but we did that back then. It also happens to be the most frequently cited psalm in the New Testament. Nearly... 20 times. That's remarkable, and all of them relate to Jesus. If I turn this on, I think I have. No, I haven't. Let's try that. Ah, good. All those years of engineering school, and I still can't use this. <laughs> so a bit of a roadmap to begin. Uh, we have a quick, uh, we'll have a quick look at Psalm 22 and see how it connects to Psalm 110. We'll spend most of our time looking at Psalm 110, it's only seven verses, but it actually raises a unique set of quite puzzling issues. And then finally, given its prominence in the New Testament, we'll look at its application to Jesus. And in particular, we'll have a look at Jesus' own striking use of this psalm. Now, that's a lot to cover, so we'll need to strap in. Okay, But before we do, let me just note... Many folks in our culture see these ancient texts as passé and not worth the bother. But the fact is, they overturned antiquity and gave us the dignity, extraordinary freedoms, explosion of knowledge and creativity of the modern world. And let me tell you, modern China knows this because I've taught there exactly on these matters. So they could not be more relevant. We should pay attention. Well, going to Psalm 22, it began with a faithful David wrestling with a sense of being abandoned by God, something none of us have ever felt, I'm sure. Surrounded by vicious enemies and his own body failing, all he could do was trust a holy God. But do note, it wasn't blind faith. It was predicated on Yahweh's character as revealed in the Exodus. Now, apologies for this shameless moment of self-promotion, but I'm leading a tour to Egypt early next year, and one of the things we'll be focusing on is the historical reality of the Exodus. When read against an Egyptian backdrop, it's frankly impossible to explain these scriptural accounts unless something very much like them happened. If there wasn't a Moses, we'd have to invent one. So Psalm 22 then is a mightily important reminder that the scriptures are based not on rational speculation nor current cultural fashions, but like science, on historical experience. This is why not only the Psalms in general, but Psalm 22 in particular, is so concerned with experience. Knowing God is not just a theological confession. It's a deeply personal encounter, something even we Christians can sometimes forget. That is, knowing about God is not actually the same thing as knowing him. So do the Gospels. They recount what people saw, touched and handled as they personally encountered Jesus. So those who boldly tell us not to allow our theology to be shaped by our experience haven't read their Bibles very well. 
Now, I do understand their point. It's not just anybody's experience. It's that of accredited participants. But it is still based on experience. Well, out of that, Psalm 22 raises two huge questions. Why do godly people suffer? And how should we respond when they do? Well, as far as I know, no one has ever resolved the tension between the goodness of Israel's unique Lord and the existence of suffering and evil. All the attempts I've seen end up misrepresenting either the goodness and the power of Yahweh or the perverse meaningless, meaninglessness of evil. And often they do both. Denying the existence of God doesn't help either. It merely reduces horrors like the Holocaust to the level of whether we prefer cream in our coffee or not. That way lies madness. The only viable alternative is what we see in the Psalms and especially what we saw in Psalm 22. And it's not that David understood, as we heard in the prayer this morning. As Job so powerfully argues, we never can. Our problem, according to Job, is not a lack of explanation. It's that as creatures, we simply lack the intellectual and emotional capacity. Imagine trying to explain the measurement problem to a seven-year-old. It's impossible. They simply lack the intellectual wherewithal. And suffering is several orders of magnitude more complex. That's why in Psalm 22, David responds by remembering the holiness of Yahweh. A holiness that gave rise to the merciful and compassionate deliverance and the righteous judgments of the Exodus. Exactly those realities that underlie our Psalm 110. So similarly, can I suggest the right response to our suffering is to read the Gospels. The Lord's new Exodus. To look at who Jesus was, what he said and what he did. And we'll see there exactly what we saw in the Exodus and in Psalm 22. A final vindication, likewise based entirely on a holy Yahweh's faithful character. Now, with all that, a messy present and a future hope, both beyond mere human comprehension, right, all of this brings us to Psalm 110. If any psalm expresses God's commitment to vindicating his faithful servant David, it's this one. But it has some seriously baffling problems. First of all, it's not clear why it was written, nor when, nor even by whom. Some think it's an enthronement psalm. Others a celebration of kingship, or particularly based on the reference to Melchizedek, of David's capture of Jerusalem any of which would date it early in David's reign, and they might be right. But, and this is vital in every area of life, sounding reasonable does not make something true. Aristotle, extremely clever, extremely clever bunny that he was, thought it was perfectly reasonable that heavier objects should fall faster than light ones. And it was reasonable, but he was wrong because they don't. What's needed is firm evidence. And for Psalm 110, we have none. We just don't know. Well, at least Psalm 110, like Psalm 22, is attributed to David and hence belonged to his reign, right? Well, if only it were that simple. 
a difficulty arises in the very first line. Verse 1a has two different Hebrew words for Lord, and on the screen they are represented by two different writing styles. The first, Lord, capitalized and in small caps, translates the Hebrew word Yahweh, the unique Lord who revealed himself at the Exodus. That's Psalm 22 again. The second, in lowercase, translates Adonai, which is the more general term for master or Lord, but it can also mean Yahweh. That can be a bit confusing and only context will tell. Now, here's the question. If Psalm 22 is written by David, whom is he honoring as my Lord? Solomon, perhaps? But that hardly fits scriptural history. Solomon comes to the throne in a time of peace after the Lord has defeated David's enemies. That's not what's going on in Psalm 110. The most commonly accepted solution is then that the psalm was not written by David, but rather about him. In which case, my Lord is David, the author's Lord and Master. But there are problems here too. First, this is not how the expression of David is taken everywhere else in the Psalms. It characteristically means, as it does in Psalm 22, written by David, which is how Jews in Jesus' day understood it. Second, in the Psalms, over 90% of the time, the lowercase Lord, Adonai, always refers to Yahweh. And in those Psalms attributed to David, every other instance does in fact mean Yahweh. That's 37 times. Furthermore, the largest scriptural cluster of the lowercase Lord is found in 2 Samuel 7. It's also about David, and each of those seven instances refer to Yahweh. Now, a lot of technical stuff there, but put this together. If we take this material at face value, what we've got, bizarrely, is David writing about Yahweh of the Exodus, speaking to the my Lord who made covenantal promises to him. That is, God is somehow speaking to himself. Well, you're going to see the problem. It makes good sense for the psalm to be written about David, but only if we ignore the above. Not to mention the second oracle further down and its reference to a Melchizedekian priestly role, which, like so much in this psalm, never arises in David's lifetime. So for the majority of commentators, having this psalm written by someone other than David is the lesser of two exegetical evils, and I get that. But what's really interesting is when you get to the Gospels, it's precisely this problem that Jesus himself exploits. That means it was hardly unknown to native Hebrew speakers way back then. But rather than reconstruct the Hebrew text, they simply lived with it. Now, what about me personally, giving you all that stuff? We will get to the psalm, don't worry, but this is critical, it's important. The older I get, right, and I'm losing more hair daily, the more experience I have and the more I learn about history and the scriptures, the happier I am to admit to being baffled. It happens a lot. But it's not as if baffled, baffled confusion is without scriptural parallel. Just think of Isaiah 53's enigmatic servant. Since Yahweh, in testing Abraham's devotion, had long before rejected any notion of sacrificing children, 
How must it have shocked and bewildered the prophet when the Lord now promises to sacrifice his own faithful servant? But the prophet must above all be faithful to what Yahweh has said, whether they understand it or not. And so can I suggest, might we, our job's not to critique this or try and make sense of it in terms of our own understanding, but simply to go with what God has to say. So I'm happy then, with a number of other commentators, to let some 110 sit and await developments. Some of it might be hyperbole, after all it is poetry. But it could equally refer to a dimly perceived but astonishing future. Not unlike the astounding exultation at the climax of Psalm 22 or the mystery of the servant in Isaiah 53, all of which will only become evident when they are experienced. Good. Now, turning to the psalm itself, it seems to have two units, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7. The first is introduced by the classic prophetic statement, utterance Yahweh, which gives rise to our English, the Lord says, and the second is introduced by Yahweh's swearing and irrevocable oath. Now do notice how everything is predicated on Yahweh's word. Just as it was in the Exodus, as it was in 2 Samuel 7, and even in creation itself. Folks, if we want to stand firm, this is how it should be for us too. Everything starts with the word of the Lord. And the first word here is the command to sit. to be enthroned at Yahweh's right hand. Now, some of us are so accustomed to this language that it barely registers. But sitting at Yahweh's right hand is staggeringly the highest position of power and glory imaginable, short of usurpation. We need to let that breathtaking thought just sink in. This is an extraordinary statement. Nevertheless, it's equally clear that it is Yahweh who makes my Lord's enemies his footstool. And interestingly, this is precisely how Egypt's vassals described themselves. They were the footstools of Pharaoh. So now, so to speak, the footstools have turned. So in verse 2 then, it is Yahweh who sends out your mighty scepter, which is, as Shakespeare so memorably put it, that force of temporal power the attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. Well, this shouldn't surprise. David's early reliance on Yahweh is a staple of the David histories. And not surprisingly, as with Psalm 22, it echoes Yahweh's stretching out of his mighty arm in the Exodus again. This is no merely human power. As Pharaoh's magicians warned Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In fact, later Jewish writings emphasize that it will be Yahweh himself who defeats his people's enemies. The Messiah is at best the instrument and more likely merely the recipient. Right? It's only on the basis then of his subordinate status that my Lord is commanded to rule. Now, earlier generations of Canadians for whom life really was a struggle didn't need to be reminded of their tenuous existence. It's us who are far more comfortable and taken care of, who are at the centre of every advertising campaign. Rick, you deserve this. It's your right. And whose delicate sensitivities can never be offended, 
who need to hear that unless the Lord builds the house, we labour in vain. Shelley's Ozymandias got it right. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So much for human pretension. Verse 3 has been described as the most perplexing verse in the Psalms. Nearly every line is debated, not least because of multiple possible meanings. But I shouldn't be surprised if that's deliberate. It's the power of evocative poetry over plodding prose. Now, most translations capture the people's response. They freely offer themselves to the service of the king. But what's missed is that the most common Hebrew usage is far more specific. It concerns a free will offering or sacrifice to Yahweh. If that sense is implied, then my Lord's people respond by giving their living selves as offerings to Yahweh, not just to the king. Now, this might sound a bit odd were it not for the fact that the first century standout Torah scholar, Paul of Tarsus, uses exactly this metaphor in Romans chapter 12. We too, as followers of the Lord Jesus, are to offer ourselves a living sacrifice to God. On the day of your might follows the Hebrew wording and suggests that your people, as in the Exodus, are responding to the mighty words and deeds that they're witnessing. Now, only after establishing Yahweh's priority and then the people's right response does the focus finally turn to my Lord. Now, I suspect that order is deliberate if leaders are not to get above themselves, which happens unhappily all too frequently. It's the second half of this verse that then bends most minds. Now, an older generation happily amended texts. Uh, we younger ones, and yes, I am younger compared to others, are usually less persuaded. Who said poetic images should be straightforward? In majestic holiness anticipates the following priestly reference to Melchizedek, which we'll come to in a moment. Just as with Yahweh himself, the king's majesty must be grounded in his holiness. Of course. Think about the terrible damage that's been done to the Lord's reputation by Christians and especially Christian leaders behaving badly. I wonder, where does a demonstrable holy life sit in our list of criteria for elders, board members or pastors? According to Psalm 110, being seated at God's right hand necessarily entails a majestic holiness. Now, the English from the womb, from the dawn like dew, is actually a lot smoother and coherent than the underlying Hebrew text. But again, remember, it's poetry, and poetry is intended to evoke, often by juxtaposing surprising metaphors. Essentially, it describes the Lord's mysterious and unpretentious action in his begetting of my Lord. It will happen as inexplicably as the fragile early morning dew. Now, that's hardly an image of the self-reliant strong, 
but Jew fits well the shepherd boy David, who is of so little account that he's not even included in the first lineup of Jesse's sons. And likewise, too, the unglamorous and airily dismissed messianic servant of Isaiah 53. And of course, begotten was already associated with David's becoming king back in Psalm 2, but was then taken back all the way to his birth in Psalm 22, and even before that, as in Psalm 139. Given, too, that this is all the Lord's action, we're not surprised, I guess, by the reference to the dawn, which is characteristically the time of Yahweh's saving intervention. What does surprise is the sworn oath of verse 4. My Lord is to be a priest forever in the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, that link makes some sense since Israel's priesthood appears to have provided a template for its kings. They were both anointed. The priests were to tend the tabernacle, and the later king builds and protects the temple. Both have authority over all Israel, and Samuel provides priestly food for the soon-to-be king Saul. Both are to have a specific interest in the law. Indeed, the king is to have his own copy. Both are dynastic, chosen by God. No one takes either position for their own volition, and both have supreme judicial authority. In Exodus 32, the first item of priestly clothing was the sword, when the Levites took them up against their idolatrous fellow Israelites, and so to the king. Tithes were to be paid to both, and their clothing is similar. We could go on. But what seems clear is that Israel's kings were also to be holy, devoted solely to obeying the Lord. That's exactly the implication of Psalm 110's opening verses. However, at the same time, Scripture clearly delineates between priest and king. Kings are not priests. While they have authority over priests and can even preside over sacrifices, they cannot take specifically priestly roles to themselves, as that leprous judgment on the otherwise righteous Uzziah indicates. However... The implication of this text is that David's my Lord would in fact inherit not just a priestly role, but that of Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, the original sacred mediator between God and humanity, and to whom none other than Abraham, the father of the nation, tithed. Wow. Moreover, there is nothing in Israel's scriptural history that even once suggests that Davidic kings ever assumed such an exalted status, let alone operated in this way. Yeah, Uzziah tried it on with the Aaronic priesthood, but that's not this. For me, it's just another indication that Psalm 110 is primarily a prophetic promise. Well, some see verses 5 through 7 as returning to the military aspect of kingship. I suspect instead that they reflect the influence of a holy priesthood upon a holy kingship. Just as the priest defended Yahweh's holiness, so the king's duty is to protect Israel's covenantal promised land. Now this is important. The conquest happened before kingship. Kingship was only instituted when that land needed protection and a more cohesive administration. 
Kingly violence was only ever to be defensive. It's why Israel was never permitted to build an empire like either Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece or Rome. Verse 5 then repeats verse 1's right hand and Adonai, that is the lowercase lord. And again, there's the question of who he's meant. Now, in keeping with what we saw is the psalm's most common usage, most commentators now take this Adonai, the lowercase, to mean Yahweh. In which case, we're dealing with a different metaphor. This speaks to Yahweh's being at the Lord's right hand. He is the true power behind my Lord. And after all, the shattering of kings on the day of wrath the executing of judgment on the nations, yes, even filling them with corpses and shattering heads, these are all actions of Yahweh. But again, there are problems. Because what do we do when we get to verse 7? We can hardly imagine Yahweh having to slake his thirst. He neither grows tired nor faint. Instead, it's Yahweh who characteristically provides water for the thirsty. And again, not least in the Exodus. Second, why change the language to Adonai? Why not continue to use Yahweh as in the beginning of the two key oracles, verses 1 and 4? Well, what if instead verse 5 is simply directly repeating verse 1? It's because my Lord Adonai is at your right hand, Yahweh, that he, meaning my Lord, then does exactly what you do. My Lord now shatters kings, works judgment, heaps up bodies and crushes heads far and wide, but always because of his submission to Yahweh. So as verse 7 shows, this future my Lord is also a very human Davidic descendant. He'll be refreshed and renewed as were all of Yahweh's deliverers by his provision. Now if that's the case, verse 5's my Lord is at your right hand means that David is now for the first time speaking to Yahweh about his future descendant. And that change might seem odd, but it does underline the basic assumption of the psalm. Everything depends on Yahweh's being central. Please don't forget that, folks. I think Christianity is in real danger of becoming Christless. We have so many other issues we're interested in, and they're important, that Jesus somehow gets lost. That would be a terrible, terrible tragedy. He has to remain at the centre. So stepping back then, if Psalm 22 had the Davidic king feeling abandoned by God, right, the truth is he was not. He will experience a final vindication so astonishing that it will reach even to the dead and generations as yet unborn. We saw that last time in Psalm 22. At the same time, according to Psalm 110, this vindication will also mean, as it did in the Exodus, devastating judgment on those kings and nations who persistently refuse to acknowledge Yahweh, who, as the Exodus also demonstrated, is the sole creator and who alone controls his creation. And in that day, the day of Psalm 110, since the entire earth is the Lord's, it will involve all nations. So when confronted with this reality, they must choose. It's a very serious choice indeed. And hence, I think, the piling up of these shocking, lurid images. You have to ask, why does this have to be so confronting? I don't mean to be trivial, but is Mel Gibson lurking somewhere in the background? On the other hand, 
Given our propensity to avoid facing up to unpleasant reality and above all to excuse ourselves, remember what Bruce Coburn used to sing? Everyone loves to see justice done as long as it's to somebody else. Perhaps confronting is exactly what we need. If you like, Psalm 110 long ago realised our need to be woke, but woke to God's perspective. Now, while clearly a man after God's own heart, who apparently spent a lot of time sitting in the Lord's presence, David was nevertheless beset with failings. I'm not sure it would have taken much reflection for him to realise the need for a Lord holier and greater than himself, nor to be assured that a faithful and compassionate Yahweh would indeed beget such a one. If so, then this is what Psalm 110 really expresses. The assurance that the Yahweh of the Exodus would one day provide in a mysterious and unexpectedly apparently fragile birth a truly majestic holy one through whom he would fulfill his promises. How you doing? Hanging in there? There's a lot of stuff, right? But then uh, whoever said scripture was just shallow. Well, now we come finally, you can show your pleasure, to the New Testament. The majority of the Psalm 110 references pick up on God's ultimate affirmation of Jesus in his ascension and present enthronement at God's right hand. Hebrews, in making the case for the superiority of Jesus as the mediator between God and humanity, alone takes up the reference to Melchizedek. This is often seen as a later Christian development, but that's not what the Gospels say. In Mark, I would argue the earliest of the Gospels, it's Jesus who cites Psalm 110 and twice, both in hostile situations and both just before his death with all of its Psalm 22 associations. In other words, the appeal to Psalm 110 and connecting it with Psalm 22 first began with Jesus himself. So this morning, we're simply following his lead. Should we be surprised? Not at all. No one comes close to Jesus' remarkably self-assured sense of personal identity, his knowledge of scripture, and the astonishing authority of his words and deeds. Now, the first instance is during his public confrontation with the Jerusalem leadership. Having thrown their best at him and now stunned into silence by his unanswerable replies, he finally asks them a question. And do note the context. This is Jerusalem, meant to be Zion, the city of Yahweh, the great king. It's on Passover, the great feast that not only recalled Yahweh's mighty words and deeds of deliverance and judgment at the Exodus, but also it anticipated a new one. It's happening in the temple, the very place intended to house Yahweh's personal presence, but which presence had never returned after its departure during the exile. It's hard to imagine a more freighted situation. Now, of all the questions Jesus could have asked, and many come to mind, what does he go after? The true identity of great David's greatest son, the Messiah. How can the scribes, meaning the Jewish experts in scripture, say that the Christ is the son of David? After all, David himself, Jesus is convinced of Davidic authorship, by the Holy Spirit, so this is no mere human opinion declared, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David himself calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Jesus is homing in on exactly the problem that we spent some time on earlier. What are we to do with the reference to Adonai, especially in the light of its meaning everywhere else in the Davidic Psalms and given the rest of what Psalm 110 describes? Well, on reflection, there really can be no doubt. Look at what Jesus says and does. From the very beginning, an unclean spirit fears destruction at his command. Jesus reads his opponent's hearts and forgives sins. He controls the sea and feeds people in the desert. He addresses his fellow Israelites as his sons and daughters. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he shines in brilliant white, which Jewish tradition attributed only to Yahweh, with Moses and Elijah talking to him, and long before the cloud turns up. Only Yahweh does such things. Jesus' last public question on Passover in Jerusalem and its temple is to get them to see that he is no mere human Messiah. He is, in fact, as his words and deeds demonstrate, the very presence of Yahweh himself. And that, according to Jesus, is what the Holy Spirit was saying through David in Psalm 110. It's true, Jesus is indeed the obedient son of God. And Paul, our Torah expert, mentions that some 17 times. But he confesses Jesus as Lord, that is Yahweh himself among us, over 200 times. So which do you think is most important? Jesus saw himself first as Yahweh's long-awaited personal presence right here among us, and only then at the baptism is he designated the obedient son and servant. He is, as the famous New Testament confession goes, both Lord, Yahweh among us, and Christ. We do realize who we're worshiping, right? Second citation, and we're almost done, occurs when Jesus is personally confronted by Israel's hostile high priest. Frustrated by false witnesses, he wants a direct answer from Jesus. So he asks, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Well, a once-guarded Jesus, now that that die is cast, puts the question beyond all doubt. I am, he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of glory. That's a combination of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, both of which speak to Yahweh's destruction of his enemies. You see what that means? It makes the high priest is not only it makes the high priest not only the Messiah's enemy, but also God's. And if that's not enough, the Daniel 7 allusion equates the high priest to the little horn on Daniel's ferocious fourth beast. No wonder the high priest tears his robes, or that Jesus had earlier announced the destruction of both temple and city. Well, our time is gone, and we've covered a lot of ground, but hopefully we can hear the implications. Jesus is not merely a kindly Mr. Rogers, the romanticized father figure that we might never have had. Nor is he some AAA battery-sized mini version of God. He is, in fact, the creator, Yahweh himself among us. That's what it means to call him Lord. And like Yahweh, he is compassionate and merciful, offering the good news to all in healing all who came to him. 
He's even willing in this new exodus to be Isaiah 53's rejected servant and to lay down his life on Passover for our redemption. But that's not the end of the story. As David's messianic son, he has been vindicated, as in Psalm 22. And moreover, as foretold in Psalm 110, a day of devastating judgment is coming. After all, this creation belongs to the Lord, not to us, and we will be held accountable. Now, we might not like that, but I'm not sure our preferences come into it. Like the person who jumps off a 50-storey building decrying gravity's hateful intolerance all the way down, when they finally hit the bottom, the only change in the entire cosmos will just be one less anti-gravity protester. Let's not make that mistake. In God's great mercy, as Paul says, who himself saw the Lord Jesus in his ascended glory, see, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Brothers and sisters, be smart. Get things sorted now. Grace and peace to us all. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.